Hello, everyone. My name is Sara Shivasa, and I'm your host on the Dialexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues. Today, we have with us Dr. Ian Tully, who is a postdoctoral fellow in philosophy and mental disorder at Johns Hopkins University's Berman Institute of Bioethics. He completed his PhD in the philosophy department at Washington University in St. Louis. And after graduating, he spent two years working for Washington University's IRB uh, before joining the Berman Institute. Uh, his work broadly explores uh, ethical theory in the context of depression. Uh, hi, Dr. Tully, how are you today? I am fantastic and thanks so much for inviting me. This is such a cool podcast. Of course, um, and thank you for the kind words. Um, so with the introductions done, um, let's move on to our discussion today where we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into depression and kind of your research um, and what philosophy really means to you. Um, so let's get started. Sounds good. Although, although I did briefly introduce you, um, for our audience who may not know a lot about you, could you please provide a little bit more information on who you are, your background, and your relationship to philosophy? Like, what does philosophy mean to you and how has it helped you in your career or just your daily life? Sure, yeah. Well, so maybe I'll tell you a little bit about how I got into philosophy and thereby kind of explain how I think I relate to philosophy and how I kind of conceive of the discipline, such as it is. Um, so I came to philosophy via English. I was an English major in college. Um, and I sort of discovered that what I liked about the literature that we were reading was it the big questions it was raising. Um, and I wanted to learn more about that, but philosophy wasn't really something on my radar at the time. I had taken a philosophy kind of mini survey thing in high school. So I kind of was aware that it existed, um, but it didn't seem to me like, it, I was not remotely aware that this was a profession that adults could engage in uh, and get paid to do. And I still frankly find that kind of remarkable. Um, but I, so I decided to start taking some philosophy courses just to kind of see what it was all about. And I got really hooked. I was like, oh, wow, this is exactly what I like. This is what I want to do. I got really invested in questions of, um, oh, I was very interested in consciousness at that time. Uh, and I still am, obviously. Um, and I was very interested in, in questions of kind of moral realism. Uh, and it, it just it was intoxicating. I could think and talk about that with my dorm roommates. I could talk about that with friends and family and my professors. And, um, so I just kind of got hooked. Uh, and after that, I went to graduate school. I did a master's actually first in Colorado, and then I went to WashU. Uh, I was attracted to WashU because of a guy there named John Doris, who I ended up writing my dissertation with. Um, and he has a kind of conception of philosophy that really jives with mine. So for me, I find it very difficult to, to identify what's philosophy and what's not. Um, to me, and to some extent, like philosophy just encompasses everything I find interesting. Uh, somewhere along the lines, uh, Jerry Fodor, I think in his book Concepts, uh, is responding to a critic who is like, what you're doing is not philosophy. And he's like, well, I don't know how anyone can tell or why anyone cares. Uh, and I sort of feel the same. Like, uh, and, and John does too. He's kind of famous for, for bringing a lot of empirical work into philosophy, kind of even doing empirical work, but also, be, you know, apprising himself of what's going on in, in empirical psychology in particular. And I find that really cool too. Um, and so, yeah, my approach to philosophy is just kind of trying to keep myself uh, apprised of what's going on uh, in the sciences and seeing if I can contribute to that, you know, via from the armchair, you know, by doing kind of conceptual analysis and so forth. Um, 
so yeah, that's kind of my relationship to philosophy. I also sort of see it in some ways. Uh, this is kind of an old trope, but it's kind of, it gives birth to disciplines. So it's kind of the outer edge of inquiry, you know, in the beginning of, you know, I don't know, Western tradition anyway, philosophy was just sort of everything. Uh, and then slowly we, you know, bequeathed physics and, you know, bequeathed chemistry and so on and so forth as we got better at figuring, at like figuring out the right questions that we wanted to ask in the methodology we wanted to use to answer those questions. Uh, and I feel like today philosophy is really dealing with some of the, you know, the most intractable questions. So consciousness comes up, but also, you know, the status of normativity and that sort of thing. So I did want to ask you, because I definitely do agree that like philosophy itself is not seen as a profession. Like I can tell you countless times if like, you know, even like with my friends, if we're talking about like philosophy, we always just analyze philosophical interpretations of certain things, which is probably why there is no like a real thing called philosophy, because everything can can be philosophical at one point. Um, but you know, it just doesn't seem like a profession uh, or like it's not well known that it's a it's a profession that anyone can just join and you know like you said sit in the armchair and get paid for it um so i wanted to ask just because you said that you had an interest in consciousness um so how does like navigating different branches of philosophy work when you have like a sub concentration or like a field that you're specifically working in um how do you like analyze all of these different branches and try to com combine it into one when you're researching something like, for example, depression? Oh, that's a great question. And I have, <laughs> if I had an answer for that, I would be very happy because I really don't. Um, so in some sense, what's happened is I've had to kind of narrow my focus. You know, I try to stay apprised of what's going on in other branches of philosophy. Um, but for the most part, my work is really interested in questions that are Kind of at the heart of philosophy of psychiatry like what is mental illness uh and questions that are sort of more bioethical like you know how ought we best to treat depression you know i can get into that more later when we talk about bioethics um so in some sense i've really had to kind of narrow the range of things that i'm trying to keep apprised of i mean i do still read uh, what psychiatrists uh empirical psychologists are talking are writing about when they write about depression um but some of my more Philosoph philosophical interests that are somewhat further abroad. Um, I don't know, things in metaphysics, for instance, I find interesting, but I don't, in my day to day, I don't really have time to continue thinking about them. Um, but what's really nice is that's where colleagues come in because they can keep me informed because they're the ones doing that work. Uh, here at Berman, it's really nice because we're a really, really kind of heterodox group in a way. So it's, we're philosophers, but there's also social scientists, there's political scientists, there's, um, like dot medical doctors all kinds of folks all at the table and we get together every week and share our work uh, and that's one way that's really been helpful to keep keeping me informed of what's going on kind of in the broader world outside of my little patch um, but it's a real challenge i mean there's just so much out there <laughs> and given the sort of disciplinary norms that require you know frankly excessive publication um it's very difficult to keep on top of even one's own narrow little area yeah, definitely. I mean, just when I'm researching, like, there is so much out there. It's like, a lot to take in sometimes. But I mean, I definitely understand, you know, when you probably have like a sub interest, and you kind of have to stay on that. But it's good that you have colleagues to like inform you on that. I think that's like really beneficial in any in any field, really. 
So I wanted to move into our discussion on like depression as a whole or like mental illness and further like bioethics. So depression is a term that's frequently tossed around, um, especially in like student settings. Like I can remember numerous times when students have made like questionable comments on like how workload um, and the so-called like depression that that workload creates um, or leads them to, or comments that just negatively like, like reinforce stigmas that we don't want to. And I know you've written a paper called um, Demarcating Depression, but I'd like to clarify that definition of depression. So when we talk about and like discuss depression, particularly in philosophy, are we talking about the clinically evaluated uh, depression by like psychiatric means, or is there a difference between being depressed uh, about something or being depressed in general? Um, and is there a fine line that we can establish given that depression is by definition subjective because it's you know based on personal experience? Yeah, so those are all great questions. And frankly, a lot of my work is trying to figure out how we draw the lines between what is, so depression is, everyone get, experiences depressed mood from time to time, you know? Uh, that's perfectly normal and not indicative by and of itself in and of itself of any kind of mental disorder. Um, but there's also a clinically significant phenomenon called major depressive disorder. Um, and trying to carve the boundaries between the two is very difficult. Uh, so that's one of the like chief interests in my work because I think it matters for a lot of reasons, some of them political. Um, so I, in the history of Western medicine thinking on this question, um, the difference is generally uh, explained in terms of justifying cause. Uh, so when someone is experiencing negative mood and some of its concomitants, you know, maybe a lack of motivation, maybe fatigue, maybe difficulty sleeping, things that are clinical indications of depression, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, but they're experiencing those things in response to, you know, a clearly identifiable adversity, you know, a bad breakup, say, or difficulties at school, right? Um, then the kind of the, the tradition up until sort of the 20th century has tended to think, and I tend to agree, that that's not indicative of mental illness, right, a disorder. Um, that's kind of your mood system functioning as it ought. And we can talk a little bit later maybe uh, about what the purpose of depression is, if anything. Um, where it seems that you have a clinically significant phenomenon is when you have those kinds of responses and they're either dressed, they're just seem to come from nowhere, right? They don't seem to be in response to anything. So as you put it, kind of uh, depression that's just sort of about the world in general, uh, or they're sort of disproportionate. So they're either too intense uh, um, or they're too long lasting, or perhaps they involve features that we just don't think are appropriate under any circumstances. So feelings of worthlessness, uh, suicidal ideation, that sort of thing. Um, so if you're experiencing of, you know, yeah, what's a very kind of minor difficulty, you know, you got a bad, a, a B on a test or something, and you were hoping to get an A, uh, and you perseverate on that for weeks at a time, and you can't get it out of your head, and you're just so eaten up by it, uh, that seems, and that seems like a clinically significant phenomenon. Um, there's a, a, a psychologist uh, named Lewis Wolpert, who has a really useful term for depression, which is, uh, it's sadness that's gone malignant. 
Um, so sadness has its place. It's a perfectly normal phenomenon, but it can become self-reinforcing. Uh, and so in those circumstances, it seems like we have uh, something that it seems plausible to call an illness, or at least something that medicine has an interest in trying to stop. Um, I think of depression in a way as kind of um, like a perseverance disorder. It's, it's a kind of a normal response to adversity that's become self-reinforcing uh, and so can't be easily gotten out of. So in that scenario, um, like I know, like, so I'm taking AP psychology in school. And so I think like in some of the um, mental illnesses and mental disorders that we've talked about in class, we've identified that there is a specific time period um, allocated where, you know, it changes from a mood kind of thing where it's like a response to a, a stimuli uh, or like a stimulus. Um, and now it has become something where it's like a state of like, of like the subject, right? So is there like a time frame for depression? Is it like two weeks, six weeks, or like what are, what's the range that we're talking about? And then um, I guess I also wanted to ask, doesn't that range also change per person? Um, like how, how do, how do we evaluate, how do we like distinguish between that? Like what is the way in which we account for that? Cause obviously every person is different and just exploring those questions um, seems like a really big challenge. So what's the way in which we can like jump over that hurdle, I guess. <laughs> to the last question, that's really, uh, you know, something that I still worry about quite a bit because you're completely right. It is subjective. It really does kind of depend on the person or the culture, especially. Um, and I think there's going to be fuzziness, uh, but I don't necessarily think that means that we can't kind of carve most cases or put most cases in one box or another. Um, but it's definitely going to be contestable. It's stuff that we kind of have to argue about. It's it's a normative question at the end of the day. Like, is this person's response to adversity disproportionate, inappropriate, just, you know, seems wrong? Um, yeah, and we can, I think we can get that wrong. It can, the answer to that question can be ambiguous. It may not be, may not have an answer, but in some cases, I think it's plainly clear. Uh, and trying to maintain that distinction, I think is important. Um, I wouldn't necessarily advert to just time frame. So the DSM will diagnose depression after two weeks, provided that one meets a, a sufficient number of symptoms, uh, one of which has to either be depressed mood or anhedonia, which is loss of interest uh, in, in pleasurable activities. Um, I think that is not, so I think it's what the DSM is doing and what philosophy is after are completely different things. And so I'm not terribly interested in criticizing the DSM because I think it's really a manual that's more useful for just like insurance billing purposes than philosophical purposes. Um, but I would say that time frame is not always the best indicator because if someone, so uh, George Graham, who's, who's one of the philosophers who's written a fair bit on, on depression, gives an example of someone who's in a concentration camp and is deeply depressed as a result of this. Um, the fact that that person's depression kind of lasts longer than, than two weeks or five weeks or however long you know they happen to be in the camp, I don't think is indicative of any kind of mental illness in that circumstance. Like that person ought to be depressed given the, where they find themselves. So I wouldn't say that there's anything wrong or disordered with their mood states, their, their brain, their psyche, anything like this. Um, but I do think time frame can be a very useful indicator that, that something's gone wrong, that somebody is just sad for longer than they ought to be. Um, 
and we should look into what's what's driving that. Um, why this matters is is for a few reasons. Um, one of them is, I think we risk misclassifying uh, adversity as illness if we don't keep this distinction in mind. Um, so, for example, uh, it's a widely just I mean a widely noted phenomenon that women seem to experience quite a bit more depression than men do. Um, roughly two times more women get diagnosed with major depressive disorder than men, uh, at least in, in the United States and Western countries. Um, and what does that mean? Well, there's one reading of that, which is that women just experience a lot more mental illness in this particular way. But there's another reading, which, is, which, which seems equally plausible, uh, which is to say that women experience a lot more adversity uh, than men because they're a marginalized group and that leads them to experience more kind of you know negative emotion um, and it's not really that there's anything wrong with them they're not disordered what's wrong is our society um, so I think it's really important to try to keep that distinction in mind so we don't like miss the causes of people's sorrow yeah definitely I also think that like the question of society and even like cultures um, is also probably really intriguing because the ways in which like different cultures uh, interpret like sorrow or like elongated periods of sorrow could be completely different from like how like, you know, for example, Western and Eastern countries like a view that thing right and um, definitely like stigmas attached to it could also be different in those areas. So yeah, that's definitely an interesting question. I do want to ask you, um, you've written about like this contextual approach to classify depression and I want to ask you, um, like, what that method is and how it's able to answer that question of like classifying depression. Yeah, no, so that's, so that's great. So what, what I'm saying that's trying to demarcate depression, what I mean is this is depression that that's, that's a disorder. Now this person has a mental disorder. Okay. And there's, there's kind of roughly three ways that you could go about this. So um, just to set the question up on the table, compare grief to depression. They look identical. They can have exactly basically the same symptoms. You just, you can't get out of bed. You feel, you know, low mood. You don't really want to do anything. Any of your previously enjoyable activities, you can't sleep or you oversleep. You can't eat or you overeat. Looks like depression. Is it a mental illness? Okay. So that, that's kind of the, the, the question that I really want to answer. Um, three ways we might answer it. One is a threshold. Okay. And that's kind of what the DSM is saying. Either your symptom severity is, is high enough or it lasts for too long, or you've got too many symptoms or something like this. Now you've got a mental illness. Now you're like inappropriate, you're within the world of psychiatry now, okay? Um, something, you're, you have a mental disorder, something has gone wrong in, in the, the architecture of your brain or something like this. Um, I don't find that view adequate and that, you know, I think the, the concentration camp victim example kind of, seems like a big problem for it. Um, another one is like the presence or absence of key symptoms. So you might say it's only really a mental illness when we have feelings of worthlessness, suicidal ideation, et cetera, et cetera. I also don't think that's adequate. So the, the final one is this contextual view, which is to say, okay, in the case of grief, looks like depression, it has all the symptoms, lasts for longer than two weeks, you know, can be very severe. Um, is it indicative of illness? Well, no, because it's an appropriate response to the loss of a loved one, right? Uh, it's proportionate to its cause um, and it has a cause. So within this context, 
It isn't an illness. Uh, on the other hand, you have something that looks just like grief. You know, you're somebody who's like, can't get out of bed, you know, feeling sad all the time, doesn't want to do any of their previous activities. Um, yes, then why? And A, either they can't answer, there just isn't any cause. This just kind of came about, you know, they're in their middle age and suddenly they just kind of start losing interest in, in what they used to like and they find themselves less and less motivated at the job and, you know, they're sleeping more, they're eating less. This is going on for quite a while. You're like, hey, what's going on? And they just have no answer. That looks like illness to me. Like that looks like now psychiatry ought to step in and figure out what's happened here. Um, or you get that same phenomenon, uh, but you ask the person what happened or why, you know, why they're, they're experiencing this. And they give you an answer that just doesn't really make sense in context. So they're just, you know, like, oh, I, you know, some, I scraped some of the paint off my bumper when I was like getting out of a, I live downtown and I have to parallel park quite a lot. And it's, <laughs> this, this happens to me quite frequently. Um, and then you're like, well, but that's not really, that's fine. It's no big deal. Why, you know, why are you treating that as this, how, why have you become so, so um, deeply distraught? That seems like illness to me too. And it, when we think about this, what clinicians say about depression, uh, they can give kind of a ready answer to this. Um, so what they say is that depression is adversity, some sort of stressor plus vulnerabilities, clinically significant depression, like the depression that needs medical treatment. And those, those vulnerabilities can, can be things like a tendency to ruminate. Like you can't stop thinking about the thing that, that you're upset about. That can turn like a scratched bumper into a full-blown depression because it just you just perseverate on it. You can't stop thinking about it. Uh, somebody who has a you know breaks up with a you know a partner and then becomes like devastatingly depressed for months on end. What's happening there? Well, it could be rumination. It could be uh, they have what Aaron Beck, who's a famous psychologist who died just recently, but has did a ton of work on depression, uh, called negative self schemas, like they have tendencies to think about things in such a way uh, that it reinforces their negative mood. Um, they have attentional biases so that they can only recall negative information or they pre pre um, preferentially attend to negative information. That turns what, you know, what was a normal breakup that you should feel bad about, but not this bad about, into a clinical event. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, that's what I think of the contextual approach. But then, of course, the big problem, and you've already quite rightly pointed to it, is, well, who decides, <laughs> you know, whose norms are going to are going to carry the day? And I really don't have an adequate answer to that question. <laughs> I really do think it's going to it's going to have to be cultural specific. It may have to be individual specific in, in some contexts. OK, that definitely makes sense. I think that's also like. The, I, it, to me personally, it seems like the approach that's able to account for the most variation, right? Like, you know, you don't have, like, you have these like hard, I guess these metrics, right? Like the, the time or like the intensity, or you have like the different ways in which it, ha it can happen, like the symptoms that you're experiencing. But then this one seems to like approach the entire situation as a whole from like a top down view kind of, right? Like you're evaluating the entire situation and then determining whether or not it's like an adequate response or something that we can classify as like acceptable or like almost an unacceptable to like treat it as like a mental illness at that point, right? Is that what what, what this is kind of like? Okay, that yep, makes sense. That's precisely right, yeah. Okay, that definitely makes sense. So I wanted to ask um, that you've you've written some places that certain philosophers have like kind of deviated or maybe like 
refuse to like delve into certain questions regarding depression. Why is that the case? Is it just like really difficult to attack philosophically or is it just these questions have not been explored yet? Or what exactly is it like in the in the field of philosophy, really? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question. I think the answer might be that until quite recently, depression was just seen as a empirical medical phenomenon better left to the scientists and the doctors. Um, what could philosophy really contribute to this? Um, for quite a long time in philosophy, the boundary, well, in the 20th century, I should say, the boundaries between the empirical and the, you know, what we could say is the non-empirical, the philosophical, the a priori, um, were policed quite, quite heavily. That was, you know, philosophy wasn't about the empirical world. In fact, we kind of, we floated above it. We didn't, we weren't interested in it in some sense. Um, that really, really broke down, uh, maybe starting in the 80s with, with a philosopher named Steve Stitch um, and continuing on into the 2000s when you get things like experimental philosophy, which is philosophers doing in, in uh, experiments. And I think that probably contributed to some extent um, to kind of a neglect of this topic. Um, I also think that the emotions were not terribly on people's radar until relatively recently. There's been an explosion in, in analytic philosophy of interest in the emotions. Um, an old professor of mine uh, who's at um, Western Michigan University now named Charlie Kurth uh, recently wrote a book on anxiety, which is fantastic. You should have him on too. Um, but there's, yeah, there's been, there's been a very large interest in the emotions in recent years and depression kind of is a natural, you know, a naturally interesting one. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's probably a big part of it. Although I will say that uh, there have been a fair number of philosophers who have had quite a bit to say on this topic. Um, Jennifer Radin comes to mind. I mean, she's written amazing stuff on depression, particularly from a historical perspective. Um, George Graham, I've already mentioned. Uh, Julia Kristeva, who's more in the sort of continental tradition. Um, there's kind of two sort of broad worlds of philosophy. Um, she has a book called Black Sun, which is on depression. Uh, so there's there's been a few. Um, but yeah, it, it is funny that it's something that's so prevalent and practically everyone deals with. And especially as you've noted several times already, people kind of in the academic world, students, professors, um, it's funny that, you know, they haven't taken it up, but maybe it's something that's so close it, to see what's in front of one's nose takes a constant struggle or something. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see um, like maybe why they wouldn't, but it seems like just something that affects so many people nowadays, especially with COVID, like that it was really, really impactful. So like, I mean, it seems that maybe with, you know, how science has progressed too, like with the ways in which different, um, you know, studies have, have been conducted and how you could pr conduct those studies, maybe there will be like a lot more research into, into depression in terms of like philosophy research as a whole, which would definitely really, really interesting because like the ways in which other people interpret things could be completely different from how we interpret things. Um, so I'll, first of all, I'll definitely reach out to them <laughs> to see if they would like to come on the, onto the podcast. That'd be really interesting. Um, and like you did talk about the ways that philosophy or uh, like philosophy as a whole has conducted research now um, in the field uh, to maybe explain depression or at least approach philosophical questions about depression nowadays, right? So maybe that was why there's like a boom or like more interest in depression recently in the philosophical terms or field. I wanted to ask specifically about those studies though. So how 
how does how how do those studies happen like is it uh you know like maybe like an observational study or a longitudinal study or like you know obviously these are all like psychology terms but like all of these different studies that have you know like maybe like a scientific background to it or is it like a case study where we evaluate one specific person uh and you know try to like disprove certain metrics or try to find more variation or something like that how how does that really look like so that's a great question and it's honestly all of the above my so for me my work i mean i am trained in just armchair philosophy you know just read books think about them ponder <laughs> um and then produce something so and what i basically do is i read about what's like psychiatrists and psychologists are saying about depression and i try to bring my training which is sort of in moral philosophy and in um the philosophy of the emotions uh to bear on that like does this hold up to what i've been trained to think you know about norms and emotions and, and that sort of thing um but i don't really i haven't really conducted any particular empirical research myself uh, i just don't have the training um, but I try to read it as best I can. Um, people in the field are just doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, from like gigantic drug trials to, um, yeah, to longitudinal studies to, I mean, to qualitative research, which is often very valuable. I mean, what do people say about their depression? Um, that's really interesting in, in a variety of fields. So one of the questions I'm sort of interested in is kind of the relationship between depression and our and identity, like ourself. Um, and there's a little bit of qualitative research on this, like doing just interviews, like semi-structured interviews with, with people and asking them, you know, do you see your depression as like a very important part of who you are? You know, um, how do you, have you navigated like transitioning from being depressed to undepressed as a kind of label or category? Um, there's a decent amount of research on that, which I find very interesting. So it's, uh, it's a real mix for me, honestly, though, it's more kind of thought experiments um that's just my bread and butter uh but trying to doing that while staying informed um of the empirical research that depression and identity question seems really interesting like i think even on like just on a student level i feel like just the aura around like workload and maybe like the depressive states and honestly just in general how covid kind of shaped the way students have to like learn and how that entire atmosphere completely changed for us like i think there I, I would be really curious to see some studies hopefully if they're conducted about the relationship between student identity or like identity as a whole as a student and like depression because i feel like there has to be some link um nowadays which is really unfortunate to say but i i would that would be a really cool like explore like exploring uh, exploring or like would be really cool to explore rather um and I guess like the question about, or like the way that you were talking about maybe like what people might say about their depression, like evaluating that, I guess there's also like an interesting question there about like how confident they are about the responses that they give you, which I guess could be like a metacognitive question at that point relating to depression, which is really cool about like how like the field just expands and expands and expands into other forms. And I guess metacognition has some correlation with consciousness so i guess it boils back to another one of your interests so um that's really really cool um 
So I wanted to ask, and we were, we've were we been talking about kind of school like a little bit, and I've been bringing up examples, but I wanted to ask, um, and you also mentioned like the DSM, but um, how does like your philosophy research and the work that you do from, you know, sitting down and doing your bread and butter, reading a bunch of books and then thinking about it, uh, how does that like uh, translate into like maybe policy, like policy outcomes or like clinical outcomes even, like do you work closely with psychiatrists or clinicians to train them or something like that? Or how does that work? Like how does your research um, maybe have like an impact on actions of like psychiatrists or policy in general? Yeah, no, that's a great question. When I was reading through the questions at first, I was going to say something kind of self-deprecating about this. Um, <laughs> but actually, I do think, I like to think that there is some impact that, that my work and, and others in the kind of field that I'm working in has on, on actual policy. I think it goes a couple of different ways. I mean, I do hope that people read what I've had to say and incorporate it. Um, excuse me, I have a forthcoming paper on um, doing research, like clinical research with people with mental illness and how we could like make that safer and better for them. Uh, and since I used to work in the research regulatory world, you know, people kind of stay apprised of what I have to say and, and try to incorporate it. Um, so that's one way. I think the main one though, is that um, through teaching. So what I do here, well, so here at Berman, I mostly teach college students who are, you know, just kind of a wide variety of people. In the fall, I'm starting a job at Duquesne uh, in Pittsburgh at their School of Nursing. Uh, and there I'll be teaching nursing students, pre-med, people that are going to go into medicine and maybe policy. Uh, and I'm hoping to incorporate kind of my perspectives on mental health and mental illness uh, and the importance of it uh, in my teaching so that they become more apprised of it. Because I think in the biomedical world, biomedical ethical world, I think psychiatry is not seen as quite as terribly central. I don't know too many people in that world who are doing the kinds of stuff that I'm doing. Uh, and I'm so I'm hoping to kind of make it more prominent and 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 draw, you know, a, attention to it and urgency to it, because as, as you pointed out a couple of times, you know, young people are really experiencing a mental health crisis right now that's kind of unprecedented. Um, and it's not getting the attention that it that it ought to. Uh, so that's, I, that's kind of the main way in which I, I try to influence policy downstream from philosophy. Um, I don't really work particularly directly with, with, with policymakers. Um, even at Berman, we don't really have access to those people particularly. Um, we will bring sometimes bring them in for talks and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, uh, sometimes you can feel kind of frustrated as, a, as an academic thinking that nobody is, is listening to anything you have to say, but you're, everyone's contributing a tiny bit to this broader conversation and hopefully it adds up. So just a quick follow-up on that. Um, do you think that like policy as a whole is like maybe like an obstacle? Like I feel just personally, just based how like how slow responses are in policy, I feel like it's it can be like a really big roadblock to try to get something done because like often responses are very slow and just personally, this is not related to anything in depression at all, but just how a lot of young students feel about the government um, and like how, you know, generally speaking, and I don't want to get into like political views, but like just the ways in which a lot of the people who are making these decisions are older and yes. have no real understanding of what it means to be at our age, especially in how times have changed 
so much since they have probably even experienced like school like in general so like i feel like and and this is a lot of how like students feel at our age um that policy is really slow and it's honestly really bad for us to engage in policy almost and i feel like that kind of pessimism is really bad to cultivate at a young age um and that could probably be like leading to uh maybe elongated like states of like depression because of this like, yes. because of this slowness or whatever so i wonder if there's like maybe some interest in like policymakers or like just students in general like for example like in law school like organizing like these workshops or like these summits with like all of you guys and like maybe like the nursing school i mean it's just an interesting cool idea i feel like that would be so much benefit so much more beneficial than like what's going on right now um yeah i don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that <laughs> i do i have a lot i mean <laughs> some of them aren't exactly you know relevant to the podcast topic exactly but um i would say yes policy is a mess um in particularly lately i mean our political system in the united states is just broken in so many ways just so many ways i mean the, the system is in some ways set up to make change quite difficult and and sometimes that's a that's a benefit but right now it's a huge problem um it's also readily apparent that we live in a gerontocracy i mean our our elected leadership is very old broad, broadly speaking i mean from the presidency on down um and they're i don't think that they're you know tapped in to what young people are experiencing i don't think they have the foggiest idea what it's been like to be someone you know under the age of 18 during the pandemic and high school somebody even younger than that um or somebody in their 20s i mean just i don't think they have the foggiest idea uh and i can see that being i, I think that's a humongous problem um it's difficult quite to know how to ameliorate it it would be nice to have more young people's voices at the table right because they you all don't have a ready voice like there's you know the new york times doesn't publish ter terribly often you know people younger people um policymakers aren't reading them, it, it can be very difficult for your, your voices to be heard. Um, and that needs to change it, because in this particular context, um, yeah, we have, to be quite frank, we've really screwed young people over during the pandemic in, in, in ways that I think are going to, to be, we're gonna be wrestling with for quite a long time. Um, and I genuinely, when you said that um, feeling this kind of hopelessness towards change can, can be depressogenic, well, that's plainly true. Um, I mean, when I think, so I, I adverted a, a little while ago to thinking about like the purpose of, of depression, the purpose of depressed mood. So this is controversial, but I tend to think that, so animals get depressed, right? All throughout the, you know, at least mammalian animal um, creatures experience what looks like depression, right? Kids get depressed, adults get depressed. It's very common, it's extremely common. Um, we were talking earlier about how like there's something that's just a perfectly normal thing that looks just like depression like you know i'm feeling kind of down because of something bad happened. um that suggests that it must do something right at least it it, it doesn't necess necessitate that right we all have appendix appendices but they don't do anything apparently um but it it, it provides some reason to think that um so what might depressed mood do well it's a way of your um of an organism sort of assessing its current state uh, as, as not conducive to flourishing. Um, so you look around and you realize that things aren't going particularly well for you. You're kind of like, I don't know, you're like a grazing animal and the patch is, is pretty much totally barren. And you think 
your your, your brain tells you um, things are bad currently. So what do you what's what's kind of adaptive to do under the circumstances? Well, it's to conserve energy, to kind of like shut down, um, to like not really be readily exploring because that's just going to burn more energy that's not going to be worth doing. Um, now that can be adaptive, it can be useful, but unfortunately we have great big brains and we're able to see, think, simulate the future and we're able to think about very complicated things like the functioning or dysfunctioning of the United States government and its impact on our lives. Um, and when we think about those things and we think that, you know, I can't make change, things are gonna remain just bad for me currently. Um, you know, my circumstances are, 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 are stressing me out and I can't do anything about it. It triggers that same thing in that hurt, like that, that happens in the hurting animal where it's like, well, I may as well just kind of hunker down and not really go out so much and conserve energy and maybe sleep more and et cetera, et cetera. And we get depressed, right? But in that, in our circumstance, thinking about the ways in which the United States government is screwing us over and we can't fix it is actually not, is, it's, not a, it's not adaptive in our, in our context, right? It's not gonna help us. It's actually gonna hinder our making progress. Um, but it, you're plainly right. Like that's going to create more depression. I think that's part of what's driving all the depression of, of young people right now, that their voices aren't being heard and there's, there's somebody listen to us. <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, so, yeah. and, and just like, you know, there's, there was a study that I think conducted last year um, in July that said that like about 81% of students over the course of the pandemic have felt a massive increase in stress as well as like mental health degradation. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about like the ways in which, you know, the government or like learned helplessness because of the ways in which policy has been very slow on reacting and if they even reacted at all, because it doesn't seem like it. Um, but like, uh, you know, this kind of seems like it's being swept underneath the rug. We're trying to like forget that COVID happened or forget that these things are happening and trying to like assimilate back into normal society, whatever really normal was. You know, we can't just forget those things. So I wanted to ask you specifically about like maybe how um, whether or not like depression or mental mental illnesses have kind of been normalized in society for um, you know grad students, you know high school students, young people, um, I, I, literally anyone who might be a student, um, what, no matter the age. But is it has it been normalized? And you know, I know normal normalization could be a very strong word, maybe, um, but has it and if so what could be like a potential uh way we can i guess res resolve that or attempt to resolve that because we've talked about the ways in which why that happens but yeah. how could we potentially like ameliorate that well the latter question uh, is a is a tricky one so i would say when you say normalized i do kind of think that seems somewhat plausible i mean what I, what I think the answer to this question is basically is that um, young people are experiencing a mental health, health crisis and it's for, and we pay a lot of lip service to the importance of mental health. Like, oh, depression and, men and mental illness generally are, are big problems and society should try to tackle them. Um, but tackling them is ridiculously hard, right? Because these, if you, if you go back to this demarcating depression kind of thing, I don't think this all this depression is just a lot of young people having some unremarkable amount of, of mental disorder. What's happening is that they're experiencing, you know, lack. They're experiencing um, 
adverse circumstances in in so many ways. I mean, mo a lack of social goods, the uh, you know inability to interact with friends, to go to school, to you know, all kinds of difficulty like that, uh, and it's leading to all this depression. Um, and the, there's no real easy fix for it. There isn't like a vaccine. There isn't any. Um, I mean, there there's antidepressants and and so forth. Their efficacy is mixed to be frank um and so it's i think the reaction from the broader society and policymakers generally is to kind of just note that this is a problem say that it's a problem and sort of sweep it under the rug because the changes that would uh be necessary to make are very difficult um what those changes are my god i <laughs> you tell me frankly because i don't even know how to begin i mean I think my general thought is that there's a lot of depression in Western society because we've constructed society incorrectly. Uh, and we live in, in, a, in circumstances that are conducive to making us feel bad. Um, and that badness does not mean that there's anything wrong with us. That badness means that there's something wrong with the world we live in. Uh, you mentioned precarity in, in, your, in your questions to me, and that's a big one. Um, the difficult, it's difficult to buy a house. It's difficult to find a partner. Um, social media can really make us feel down. Um, we're very isolated. Um, these are all big structural problems um, that I think are driving men our mental health crisis um, and that require systemic change. You know, something it, it, with an infectious disease, in some sense, it's a humongous crisis, but in other ways, um, it's more easily tackled to some extent, right? We had the genome for um, SARS-CoV-2 like sequenced within like 48 hours of its, of its discovery or something like that. We had uh, vaccines under development, you know, by February of 2020. Um, we know how to deal with that. We know how to, how to fight that. And we're pretty good at it. Um, we don't have the foggiest idea how to fix mental health as a as a broad phenomenon um and i don't either <laughs> but i but i hope that at least my work is like suggesting that it's a big problem that we all need to be focusing on um i mean it's funny that i mean as i i mean i think the reason is again that it's just very difficult but we emotional pain mental health you know mental illness all that kind of stuff it just takes a back seat to, uh, to other mm. epidemiological problems in a way that it shouldn't right and, you know, you mentioned about uh, precariousness and in, in general, and I kind of wanted to get into that question a little bit because it is a little bit more in line with like deeper, deeper philosophy and like the ways in which, you know, Franco uh, Bifo Berardi kind of talks about um, in Futurability about the precariousness of work and how that can translate to feelings of exhaustion or despair or weariness and resentment, really. Um, and that can actually create something called like a collective depression or a collective uh, sort of, or yeah, collective depression um, for the precariat. Um, so I wanted to ask specifically because the book is written in the context of how capitalism, uh, you know, leads towards that does, I mean, we've talked about the ways in which the government could do so. And I guess there is a relationship between capitalism and the government, but does capitalism play a role in depression or the mass fabrication of so-called strategies to help individuals from mental illnesses? And maybe this could even be targeted towards uh, the antidepressants and how that maybe that market is like really um, exploits these feelings 
to gain a lot of money. Um, and I'm not really sure, I haven't, obviously I haven't read up on it, but is that the case? Is that something that has been explored? Um, and would this also fall underneath questions of bioethics, especially the last one um, for like antidepressants? Yes, yes. Well, with respect to antidepressants, there are many people who think quite precisely that. I mean, I think antidepressants have a, play a, a huge and salutary role in society, but I do think, um, that there is a danger and that there is quite a lot of incentive on the side of a lot of pharmaceutical companies and, and other people um, that we use them as a band-aid to cover over these structural issues that are actually driving depression uh, like you know late capitalism and it's and it's you know precarious the precarity of work um, the gig economy all these kinds of things that are leading people to you know the inability to to establish to buy a home, to start a family, to afford to go to college, all these kinds of things. Um, yes, I think that is absolutely driving uh, depression rates. Uh, I think, you know, to go back to my story about evolutionary psychology that again, I, I, I must say is, is not the consensus view in the field, but, but I, I find it to be a very useful way of thinking about this. Um, it's really, what's happening is kind of all of our evolved brains, each one of us individually is reacting kind of as we ought when we think about, you know, the precariousness of our future, well, you know, it's our, our, our brain is telling us things are likely to not stay positive for me. You know, it's very plausible that I'm going to find myself out of work and unable to afford to support my family or, you know, it's very plausible that I'm not going to be able to find the job that I want in the field that I am interested in or, you know, things like this. Um, and and we react as we've sort of evolved to upon assimilating that information. You know, we kind of shut down, we get depressed, we lose motivation, uh, we feel bad, we, may, we maybe feel guilty, we turn our uh, negative feelings inward and, and we blame ourselves. Um, yes, I, I mean, I, I think that's very much what is happening. Um, I mean, there's always been depression and there's also always been adversity. Um, and in some sense, we live in a, in a um, a very positive time because we can name it and understand that it's not it it's not blameworthy it's not something that uh you know is indicative of moral failure the way uh you know in the middle ages they they uh they have this concept called acedia um which is a, a thoroughgoingly moralized uh a version of depression you know but it, it it's blameworthy you know it's indicative of of lacking the joyful attitude befitting a christian um you know, we've moved beyond that. We recognize that this is not a, not a moral failing. It's not something to be blamed. You should be blamed for. There are ways to treat it. There are ways to help you. Um, but I do think that we have constructed a society uh, in late capitalist America, post-industrialist America, um, that's just very conducive to generating depression and that it's very, very tempting for the powers that be to speak in unnecessarily conspiratorial terms, but um, to just market antidepressant drugs to us rather than, you know, create an economy where we can all flourish. Right, definitely. And I can, I can definitely see that um, just the way in which how even ads work um, on social media. Uh, I think there was some research recently um, that said that there's like a higher percentage of like targeted antidepressants or something like that towards like younger populations, which was like a really problematic study for me to see, like, cause that's just not, I mean, I know that ads are highly specific to general populations, but that is like almost 
quite literally capitalizing on feelings that may people may not even like begin to conceptualize how that, that could be affecting them and they're already capitalizing on it which seems really really problematic for the future but i'm curious about like your work specifically in biomedical ethics so i guess these are all like ethical problems but what specifically um are you talking about when you're talking about biomedical biomedical ethics? Like, what are some problems or ethical problems that um, you can talk about broadly with uh, depression or mental illnesses? And how has your research been in that field? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm sort of still figuring it out. When I was at WashU, I was kind of just a philosopher's philosopher thinking about philosophy. <laughs> uh, when I came to came to Hopkins and, and joined Berman, um, then I had to kind of figure out what excuse me, people working in bioethics were doing. And bioethics and philosophy have an interesting relationship. There are philosophers who do work on issues that are kind of biomedical. Uh, and then there's there's people who are sort of professional bioethicists. And, and there's overlap between the two, but they do slightly different things. The professional bioethicists tend to be quite a bit more practically oriented, you know, like, how do we get informed consent and what does that look like? How do we determine when someone is capable of, of giving informed consent and when do we determine that they, a surrogate needs to be uh, brought in? Uh, questions like this. Um, and so I've been kind of relearning, retooling as I've been here at Berman. And so my research has changed in ways such that it's become more practically oriented. I'm, I've moved to some extent away from these much broader conceptual questions about depression and more towards questions about the research and treatment of depression and the ethics thereof. I'll give you two examples. Um, with respect to treatment, uh, we've been talking a bit about antidepressants and there are a fair number of people who are of the view that there are moral reasons to favor treating depression with therapy over antidepressants. Now that could be for a couple of different reasons. One of them is, um, to treat depression via therapy uh, is to give somebody skills and insight and greater autonomy such that they're able to, so cognitive behavioral therapy is a common treatment for depression. And the way it basically works is it teaches you to recognize when your thought patterns are leading you into depression, to challenge them uh, and to like train yourself into new thought patterns. And this works, it's, it's well-validated, it works. Um, it doesn't work for everyone, uh, in fact, it probably doesn't work for the majority of people, but it does work. Um, and there are people in the field who think that is a preferable way of treating depression than just giving someone a medication. Um, I think that that top, that's a very interesting line of thinking, but I worry about it for equity reasons. Um, because my guess, and I'm still kind of thinking through this project, but my guess is that suppose you're like someone from a kind of lower income, you, you're working several jobs, maybe you've got children. Um, one thing about cognitive behavioral therapy is it's very, you have to do it for like, like every day for a couple of weeks sometimes. Um, or, you know, it can be, it can be quite a commitment. You may, you may have to travel. It's an hour long. Um, and my, my hunch is that that might be more difficult for, for, you know, marginalized people. And that might make it, if we kind of internalize this thought that it's better to treat depression with therapy than meds, you know, we might inadvertently exacerbate inequalities that already exist. I mean, depression is much more common at lower incomes already. Um, so that's one, um, but I'm still thinking that through because I do find myself somewhat persuaded that there are moral benefits to therapy. Um, the second one is with respect to research. So I 
have defended a in print it's a forthcoming paper that argues that when we conduct research with uh, with people with mental illnesses, so my example in this case is schizophrenia, it's important that they have a seat at the table. Um, so in cancer research, there are cancer advocacy groups that, that speak on behalf of cancer patients and cancer research participants to make sure that they're protected, that their views are heard, uh, and that the research is con conducted in such a way that you know it's beneficial to them. Uh, and I think that we should bring a very similar kind of uh, apparatus to research with with people with mental illness um, because they're they're vulnerable, um, but also because they have a kind of situated knowledge um, that the the individuals conducting the research may not have. Um, so those are two examples that are just much more practically oriented than trying to figure out like when is depression a mental illness and when is it not. Right, definitely. And I think those questions are really interesting, especially like the first one about like maybe equity in general and how like if not well like handled or well thought out beforehand, making some radical decisions on like whether drugs work or therapy works or maybe like even like the pricing of drugs or the prices of like therapy in general and like how like accessible that should be could really like drive inequality in general and just the way that we you know we discuss this about like capitalistic society in general and like the late capitalism uh, and that could be like another point that could be really problematic so definitely some really really ex like curious curious like questions that you could ask and explore in those fields and i do like the way that it's boiling down more into like the practicality of things just because sometimes and this is a, a lot of people think about philosophy is like they think it's like so so abstract that they don't even want to delve into it because it really they would think it has like no meaning to them on like a on, on a like on a surface level which in some scenarios from what i've read i can definitely side with them but um, <laughs> me too yeah like i definitely think that you know those questions are still necessary and i do want to you know to wrap things up go back and um maybe to your um your old self not in the practical terms but like now into like the theory you know there have been like there are a lot of theories um, maybe like branches of philosophy that have been designated as like ways you can like pick yourself off the ground and like the one that points out to me the most is stoicism i think that's how you pronounce it um mm -hmm. that talks about like how boys don't cry like that kind of mentality where it's like you need to pick up yourself off the ground and you like get get well like you need to get better um and i'm curious about you know the ways in which that could probably be harmful because you know in a way it seems like a negative feedback loop where it tells you to get up and if you're not able to get up then you're bad in the context of the theory which would be like self-deprecating in a way right so i'm curious about like that and like what your opinions are on that and then if you have any like branches of philosophy that you maybe explored that could be beneficial to other people now obviously you know everyone is different and like it, there, there is by no means one answer but just in general if you've explored anything that could be beneficial yeah, no, I love this question. I mean, it's such a perfect, perfect final question. I will say, um, so I do think stoicism can be helpful. Um, so I am no expert on stoicism, to put it mildly, but my general impression of the Stoics is that, excuse me, they're not, the ones who are worth taking seriously are not really saying it's wrong, boys don't cry, it's wrong to express emotion, but they, what they really are saying is it's wrong to assign value or to overvalue things which either have no value or you know, you're, you're treating as, as more important than they really are. 
Uh, and there, there are accounts of what things have lack value um, or are indifferent in their terms anyway, uh, is controversial. You know, they'll say things like, well, losing your job is not a big deal. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. You shouldn't, this is where the kind of don't cry thing comes in because it's like, you shouldn't be upset about that. If you were being, if you were really thinking about it or rightly, you would recognize that it actually doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is your virtue, okay? Um, I do think that there's some benefit to that um, because I do think sometimes we can get ourselves, we can lose track of the things that really do matter to us and get ourselves wrapped up in, in unimportant things. Um, and that can lead to depression. Uh, and when we kind of let go and recognize what really matters to us, uh, that can actually be really beneficial. I read a book, the book that kind of got me, that was, I think, most useful for me when thinking about depression is a book called The Depths. Uh, it's by a guy named Jonathan Rottenberg. Um, he has an evolutionary account of depression. Um, and his story, he became very deeply depressed because he was in graduate school as a history PhD, and he was just not flourishing. Uh, and he, it, when he gave it up, when he recognized that this was just not for him, uh, his depression alleviated. And it was a huge benefit because he became a very influential psychologist as a result. Um, so there is something to that. Uh, where I think stoicism can be harmful is in its emphasis on self-sufficiency. It's your virtue that matters. It's you that needs to like assess things rightly. Uh, and with a disorder that's already, that tends to cause people to self-isolate like depression, that's really dangerous. Like this thought that you can do it alone, that the only thing that matters is your, you know, yourself. Um, that's just not going to be beneficial to people who are depressed. What you need when you're depressed is not isolation. You need to reach out. You need others. You need to seek help. Um, you know, it's anything that's going to, that's going to tend towards increasing your likelihood to withdraw is something to be, to be resisted. Social support is essential. I think that is really driving uh, increases of depression among young people more than, more than many other things. Um, social goods are really, really important to us. We're, we are social creatures. Man is a political animal. I mean, we, that is crucial. Um, so with respect to what has been, I've found beneficial in, in the literature and philosophy, <laughs> I wouldn't say a great deal. You know, I attend towards depression myself. I mean, I'm diagnosed with it. I've dealt with depression almost pretty much of my entire life. Um, and I, I'm drawn to depression, I mean, sorry, I'm drawn to philosophy because I'm just curious to know about the things that I think matter, you know, the, the deep questions. Um, but I haven't necessarily found a great deal of that that's therapeutic in the tradition. But I do think, I do find what people call the Hellenistic period in, in the ancient Greek and, and Roman world, um, well, Greek in this particular case, to be really, really valuable to read and that the Stoics fit in there. Um, they are part of the, the Hellenistic period and they, and they extend into, you know, deep into Rome and, and um, but there's others too. The cynics I find wonderful. The cynics are fantastic. Diogenes uh, is just enjoyable to read about. Um, I find um, the Epicureans to be honestly very interesting and worth reading. Uh, Lucretius uh, on the nature of things is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. Boethius, uh, Boethius Consolation of Philosophy, I find to be just, you know, a really beautiful meditation on kind of what matters. Um, somewhat, well, he's sort of a Neoplatonist, but 
uh, the Neoplatonists are in that camp too, the, uh, the academic skeptics are in that camp. All of that is really, is I find very therapeutic. And that's because what they're doing is what we would call these days kind of philosophy of life. You know, they're recognizing that things are difficult and, it's, and, and they're trying to give us ways of, of dealing with that adversity. And I've always found they repay rereading even when I don't necessarily agree with them. Um, I will say one final thing. Um, I am terribly long-winded. <laughs> but uh, the last thing in philosophy that I find kind of, kind of therapeutic for me, and this is a strange, a strange recommendation, is applied ethics. Because for me, I find that feeling like I'm contributing to something that's important, that matters, that's meaningful, um, is a way of stymieing my own depression and my own negative thoughts. Um, so I try to keep a, myself apprised of, you know, what people do, who are doing morally important work and seeing if I can contribute to it too, uh, and like knowing what's out there, because I really do think kind of the best hedge against depression is, is meaningfulness. Um, and I personally find derive a, a, a decent amount of meaningfulness from, from feeling like my work contributes in some small way to, to helping others. Yeah, definitely. I think like meaningfulness and then also like the social, like the social network, like of like people being there for you is like super valuable. And like, obviously, um, like the, I guess, eras of like books or like just reading on that literature could also be really therapeutic in a way because you're talking about like philosophy of life. So I do hope that, you know, our, our audience members, if needed, you know, can explore those routes. Um, uh, to, you know, help them. Um, but, you know, obviously there are a lot more, um, you know, approaches that, that you can use there. It's always, it's always subjective, um, when we're talking about these, these questions, but I really want to thank you, uh, Dr. Tully for, for taking the time to come onto the podcast and talk about this. It's really, really meaningful for all of our audience members, especially the young students who, uh, you know, just experience these things, um, on a, on a, like a, I don't want to say like frequent level, but somewhat frequent level. Um, so like, just thank you in general and thank you for your time. Yes, thank you so much. This was wonderful. This was so much fun. And I really, really appreciate you thinking of me and reaching out, so. Alrighty, and that wraps up our uh, Dialexicon podcast.